Transcripts for this week's episodes are provided by Starburst. Please do check out their Data Mesh Resource Center as linked in the show notes. Thanks. With a massive move to distributed data architecture, it's essential to have access to all of your data wherever it is. A data mesh emphasizes domain-driven data ownership, data as a product, self-service infrastructure, and federated computational governance, giving you faster time to value without needing to transport your data. Starburst allows you to achieve this distributed architecture by allowing you to run SQL queries across distributed data that connect sources, regions, and clouds. For more information on how your team can benefit from a data mesh strategy, check out our Data Mesh Resource Center on our website. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about data mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left data stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start data mesh understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do data mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. This is an episode in our Knowledge Graph Conference Takeover Week. Please check the show notes for a raffle giveaway of free tickets to the conference and more information about the Knowledge Graph Conference itself. There will be more information at the end of the episode. Thanks. Hello to the Data Mesh community. My name is Thomas Deedy, co-founder of the Knowledge Graph Conference, and I'm excited to announce our fourth and largest conference taking place at the beautiful Cornell Tech Campus in New York, and also streamed live on our virtual platform the first week in May. This year, we're adding new content focused on topics such as Web3 and decentralization, SEO, data architecture, open knowledge network, and and an entire track dedicated to business use cases. We're excited to welcome over 75 leaders from across the globe, including some amazing keynotes. We'll have over 20 workshops and tutorials and 10 tracks in the conference across the five days. We're running an in-person symposium on healthcare and life sciences, a tools and demos track, and we're also continuing our successful startup pitch event. And importantly, we're organizing numerous in-person networking events during each day and also in the evenings of the conference. So looking forward to seeing you in New York or online the first week of May, and do take the time to enter the raffle. Thank you. In this episode of the Knowledge Graph Conference Takeover Week, special guest host Ellie Young, who's the founder of Common Action, interviewed Veronica Haderlein-Hjogberg. Veronica was employed at Fraunhofer 
Geschelschaft <laughs> at the time of recording, but was representing her own views only and, and her own experiences. She was invited on for her special mix of both data mesh and knowledge graph know-how as, as she's one of the, the few people that has uh, worked on both types of implementations at a larger scale over a, uh, a longer period of time. So at Fraunhofer, uh, Veronica's employer up until recently, she and the team were implementing a knowledge graph to help with decision support for the organization. And, and previously, Veronica worked on a data mesh-like implementation as part of the Norwegian public sector uh, at the Norwegian Tax Authority specifically, before the data mesh concepts was really even congealed into a singular form by, by Jamak. Veronica and Ellie wrapped the conversation with a few key points. First, to have good data, you need to have good contact sharing. To have good contact sharing, you need conversations. Data can't only be about the bits, and we can't do everything with just computers. Second, curiosity is crucial, both on the individual level, but also at the domain and organizational levels. If people don't feel comfortable asking questions, context sharing becomes limited. So on to kind of the flow of the conversation. Veronica's recent organization, Fraunhofer, is using a knowledge graph as they need to make their investment decisions much more data-driven. They need to do analysis across many different sources. They have some slight control over internal data sources you know, from other departments and things like that. But essentially, there's no control over external sources. You know, I know a lot of people probably have felt that. <laughs> They're repeatedly doing harmonization across these sources, often the same harmonizations over and over. Veronica believes they shouldn't have to do the, the harmonization manually, so they needed to build out that translation layer. That's what they're using the knowledge graph for. To build out their knowledge graph, they needed business experts to work with the ontology experts. However, it is a struggle for time and attention from the business experts. And those business experts need to learn the importance of and how to do ontologies. This is when Ellie mentioned that by centralizing the integration, it might cost more or, or at least it might cost a lot or at least more effort up front, but it's necessary if you only want to do that harmonization work once and that you're not doing it manually. For Veronica, thinking in the data as a product mindset and having data owners is crucial to getting a knowledge graph implementation right. She said a knowledge graph is a, a different way of expressing and sharing your knowledge. It's just in a way that computers can also understand it, not just the humans. That framing helps people to understand why knowledge graphs are, are useful and important. So on to the data mesh implementation background and insights from Veronica's past experience. At the tax authority, Veronica's team of information architects were working to translate tax law in, into data models. They discovered the need of a common methodology to create the models, and they chose UML. And then other authorities needed to use the data that the tax authority team was, was producing as well. So the team began working to create data standards for efficient sharing, both the uh, ingestion and the sharing on both ends. The Norwegian data mesh implementation for the public sector is even extended into a public-private partnership. 
Veronica also mentioned that Denmark um, now has standards for how bills are written so the legal aspects can be translated more easily into data and that the uh, Norwegian folks are, are kind of envious that they want to head in that direction as well. Per Veronica, their data mesh journey started from pains. They really struggled to consume data from other entities as well as internally. They started by making it easy to consume data from those other entities without creating a large burden on those producers. They learned about good and bad practices on sharing data and which tools were best to use for data modeling. All the decisions were in small partnerships. This is kind of a common theme in a lot of data mesh journey stories of not trying to make all of your standards up front. Um, there's an episode coming up with Sami Araman who, who talked a lot about iterate, 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 that you don't have to solve everything fully up front. For Veronica, a big key to success for their data mesh implementation was taking on those small partnership and making an environment where asking questions was highly encouraged and even making mistakes was okay. This has also been a recurring theme in many data mesh radio episodes. Ellie made points that the community and communication are key to being able to make something like data mesh work. Veronica followed up that culture and quote unquote fuzzy factors are more important than tooling and even methodologies. Veronica discussed the silent fear that change brings and how that is such an impediment to getting things done. There is also a fear of looking silly when asking questions. So we need to work with people to get to a place far more comfortable with change and where curiosity is rewarded instead of shamed or looked down upon. Asking questions gives people the ability to grow as they learn new things and gives a conduit for far more information sharing. Documentation can't be the end all be all. You need those one-on-one conversations where people can really dig down into exactly what things mean. Ellie mentioned the need to stop focusing so much on the specific data in data processes. There needs to be a much bigger focus on people and the actual data creation process itself. Think about creating data for others to ingest with intentionality. For Veronica, she saw the organizational impact of implementing a data mesh very strongly. It led to a greater sense of doing meaningful work, which led to far lower churn across the organization. People felt they were doing meaningful work and they stayed around. Those cross-functional implementations had a strong impact and the people working on those implementations were far more engaged. Veronica believes that the fear of silos in data mesh makes sense, but people naturally want to prevent those silos. So allow people to focus on consumer needs and let them know that, that creating those silos is a bad thing and people will find good ways to get around that and, and to not create those. Veronica believes knowledge graphs are key to preventing silos in data mesh and somewhat vice versa. It is very difficult to maintain a knowledge graph across an organization that doesn't think of data as a product. The two discussed the importance of data reuse, even in the same use case, to prevent manual work. It's like a golden source-like concept. You don't have to figure out which, which data you can trust. That manual repetition of harmonization is what kills productivity and kills people's desire to work with data from outside their own um, 
domain or organization. Veronica made an interesting point that anytime you model data, it is almost like a mini knowledge graph. Each data model has a tiny ontology of the domain. So people really can figure out how to do knowledge graphs if they can figure out how to model their data. At the Norwegian Tax Authority, the working groups around the initial data mesh implementation started very informally. People who kind of knew each other beforehand, got beers after work, things like that. In a larger org, though, Veronica believes that the key to success is going to be talking and sharing what you are working on and talking about how it might work. Specific goals end up being very important because you need concrete deliverables, which make it easier to get funding. But again, you can start by just kind of having these chats. You don't have to have super, super specific outcomes in mind. Tim Tischler talked about the really big benefit of having these conversations that don't have ultra-specific outcomes in mind. Just share that context with each other. In the Norwegian government in general, um, Veronica's team worked closely with, with lawmakers to define business concepts and initially thought that everything had to harmonize, but found that it was more important for each domain to define their business concepts the way they understood it and then make it transparent. It isn't possible to make all data harmonizable, especially up front. The world is full of variation. So you need to think about your business concepts and then not force them on others. Focus on that translation when you have the data in such a way that it's got high context. Otherwise, you will ne never get to publishing anything. They didn't quite go as, as far as the Danish government, though, which has created a role in the lawmaking process where there is someone who understands data enough that they can word the laws to make uh, to be able to translate those into data or a data model type concept. So Veronica believes as well when you're defining kind of your ontologies and your terms and things, you shouldn't use terms to identify concepts. Use URIs. Terms are just a label, not the concept in and of itself. She also believes it is often not necessary to make things computer readable and that you need to focus on creating a living organization that you don't need to solve all of the problems and tell people say, oh, this specific thing needs to be computer readable and that, you know, things are going to evolve and there's variation and that you have to allow for that. You can't have the rigidity that, that makes that a real challenge. So to finish up, Veronica reiterated, don't be afraid, be curious. Curiosity is a prerequisite for success with data mesh or knowledge graphs. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. And welcome to Veronica, who is my guest today for the uh, first Data Mesh podcast of the, the Knowledge Graph Conference Takeover on um, Scott Hurlman's podcast channel. 
And we are going to talk about a couple of different components of, of data mesh projects, specifically data mesh and knowledge graph and, and how to, to think about um, these approaches. So let's start out, Veronica, with uh, an introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience with data mesh and knowledge graphs. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Um, I work as a data architect with the Fraunhofer Research Organization. Uh, it's an industrial research organization in Europe, one of the largest. Um, and there we, we currently work on establishing a Fraunhofer knowledge graph for all the various data sources we use to, to provide um, decision support for management. Um, in an earlier role, uh, I worked in, as a data architect in um, the Norwegian public sector. And there we established um, or worked together on establishing something which we uh, later on discovered was a data mesh. So I have, um, I have experience from both worlds. Um, and I, I guess that's why I'm here today. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly right. Um, and so let, why don't we jump into to the first experience in the Norwegian public sector. Um, so so a, a data mesh was developed there and it sounds like you actually started working on that before uh, the terms came through. So, so tell us about how that all started and what that looked like. Yeah. Um, I started there in 2010 and was in Norwegian tax authorities who, who um, started to establish a whole team of so-called information architects uh, who were tasked with um, modeling, uh, basically modeling or translating um, tax law into data models, which, which we could use or software develop, developers could use to, to create um, the code which, which is used to, to um, gather tax information, create tax reports and calculate taxes, right? Um, and then in the course of this, we, we quickly discovered that, first of all, we need a common methodology, methodology to, to um, uh, create these models. Um, so standardize on, on the kind of language and it was UML and, and um, um, all kinds of data formats we wanted to use. So um, that was the first step. And then um, it turned out, yeah, our data is used by other authorities and they have their data models uh, or code to reuse our data. So why not go to um, join forces and, and find out how we can um, provide our data in a way that other authorities can reuse it and then and, and standardize on the way of exchanging data. Um, it was many years of, of work. <laughs> and then um, I think it was in two, 2018, um, Martin Fowler's article came out or two, 2019. And um, I'm my colleague, um, Guy Mirin, I, I have to say hello to him. <laughs> uh, he's he's uh, the, the mastermind behold, behind all this. He um, he sent us uh, all the, this article and told us that's what we have been doing all the, all the time, data mesh. Uh, I, I, we lacked the word or, or the name, but it's, that's what we have been trying to build, a data mesh for the Norwegian public sector. Um, mm, so um, this is uh, what I've been doing in uh, Norway. And I, I, it's living and uh, living well, this data mesh in the Norwegian public sector. I think they've even extended it to 
to the private or a private public um, corporation so that um, companies who build roads or rent out parking lots can use data from the public sector about parking lots and, and roads. Um, so it, it has become a, um, a big thing in Norway. Mm -hmm. That's really exciting because one of the, the sort of perpetual stories about these two domains, knowledge graphs and, and data mesh, is how do we get people to understand that that these are great mm -hmm. projects and, and roll them out and, and get them adopted? So it's it's encouraging to hear about the success that you um, that you've you've experienced in Norway. Um, so what do you think led to that that you know that that adoption? Right. So we went from this sort of bottom-up context where the, the data engineers and the software developers could see there was a need for integration and started that collaborative process. They reached out to another team, right, and, and started the conversation. How did it go from there to what you're describing now with a private-public access to this shared data mesh? Um, that's a good question. I have to think back a little bit. Um... I think everything started with a certain pain we felt because as a tax authority, we also reuse data from other organizations. We reuse um, data from banks, for instance, or from from the kindergartens who reported how much you had paid for the kindergarten, uh, all kind, kinds of um, data from other other organizations. So, uh, and we struggled with um, handling the diversity of data, uh, data formats, we, we got this in. Um, so that's what was what, the starting point. And then I think we, we started very small. We started with one team and one, or, or us, the tax authorities, and then one other organization. I don't recall the details, but it, let, let's say the kindergarten, kindergartens around, around the country. Um, so we started on, on working how to how how to make it easier for us to consume their data without uh, increasing their burden too much right so it it was a close and this is i think the the it's easier in a smaller uh, society like norway than in, in a big society like germany because there's short ways between short lines between um people right it's very easy to just get in contact with uh, some kind of organization representing all kindergartens in the country. So uh, you, you can establish a, a working group quite easily. Um, so um, start, we started small with just one um, partner in a way. And then it, we learned about what, is, what, what are good ways of modeling data and sharing data and what are not so good ways. Also, what kind of tools are out there in other organizations? What tools do we want to use and how can they, ex um, how can we exchange or model data in the same way uh, um, and even have different tools for modeling? So that's why we, we um, ended up with UML because it's tool independent. Um, <clears throat> all these kinds of decisions we, we did in very small um, um, partnerships and then I think it just started to the word started started to spread that this was a good good way of working together and also obviously it helped that the Norwegian tax authorities are the largest organization uh, in, in the public sector the largest IT organization so we had the, the power and the means to to explore new ways it's much more difficult for small authorities right 
Um, so, um, so that helped in a way to to lift everyone else also um, uh, up into in, uh, to a ne the next level of, of cooperation in a way. And then we had we we formed these uh, meetups and and um, knowledge exchange uh, groups where we talked about each other's struggles and, and with data modeling and uh, or defining business concepts, all these kinds of nitty gritty details you need, right? And um, so it was a lot about talking to each other and have small uh, small small partnerships and low uh, a low threshold of asking questions and uh, making it and making it non-dangerous to ask questions and to not know. So uh, I think this is also a very important part of this kind of transition that it's, it must be allowed to ask questions. It must be allowed to make mistakes. It must be allowed to be a newbie in a way because we all were newbies. It helped a lot, um, this kind of attitude. You know, I, I think that's um, I, it's a really important point, right? Like we don't often think about the the human side of uh, mm -hmm. data projects, but when we think about you know reorganizing how we share data, of course, that's related to the people that are doing that and the community that needs to be built um, around all of these pieces. So when I'm listening to you, you know, working groups and asking questions and starting dialogues, this is all community building mm -hmm. activity. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it's really, really interesting to think about this blend between the data, you know, the data perspective and the conversations that the data engineers mm -hmm. need to have with the domain experts to understand what kinds of, of representations to make in ontologies, but also that they need to have with each other to describe the tools and, you know, agree on languages like UML, um, and then to, to expand further out into the, the community, right? So from the kindergarten on and mm -hmm. on and on. Um, so that's a really that's a really great pattern, and I also think that it's it's um, valuable to point out that the the tax agency was able to take this on because they were sort of you know a, a leader, an authoritative space, mm -hmm. and connected to everyone else. So you know if mm -hmm. they could set this up, then everyone else could mm -hmm. follow. Um, that kind of strategy is is it seems really important in these kinds of, of projects. Mm -hmm. I think so too. Yeah, mm. it, it it I think the success of these kinds of transitions. Is so much more about fuzzy factors uh, rather than tools and, and methodologies. It's mu it's about like the size of the organization who takes the, the um, first steps, uh, it, and it ha has a lot also to do about culture. I think it's in. Uh, I'm not Norwegian myself, so I can brag about Norway. <laughs> um, Norwegian. It's a deeply rooted in the Norwegian um, society that. that um, there's no question too silly to be asked, and uh, it's it's um, we. I had a, a leader, a former leader, a manager who told me once, "You have to remember, everybody comes from home when they come to work, right? They have the the whole. Um, they have probably just quarrelled with their their spouse or something, right? Or, or lost their dog or something. So you you have to remember, we all are human beings in this um, office." And when you transition into a new way of working, it's it's often also connected to fear, fear of losing control, fear of not being able to do a good job anymore, fear of being criticized. So we have to keep this as slow as possible, this kind of fear triggering um, 
anything that can trigger this fear, right? It it must be allowed to make mistakes or uh, not to not know. Um, and this is I can see it because I've I've worked in all kinds of uh, cultures, and I think it's one strength strength within Norwegian culture that makes it so much easier to get started with these kinds of transitions. So if we others, I, I'm Austrian by by uh, culture myself. So if my culture and other cultures can learn from this, um, it would be very helpful, I think. Yeah, I, I have. To, I think that's such a great point because, you know, when we think about community building, what this is, it's really about developing trust lines. Yeah, between exactly. And yeah. trust mm-hmm. the opposite of fear, right? Like, so mm-hmm. if you come from a fear-oriented culture, I mean, maybe that's a strong way to phrase it, but a culture that's not as tolerant or as, you know, mm-hmm. perceptive of the human factors, um, it's, of course, it, it makes sense that it's, it's, there's more work that needs to be done to develop these sort of partnership relationships. Um, so, I mean, so I'm, I'm curious, like, what's an example of a kind of question that someone asked, you know, maybe, maybe something theoretical or that, or that you just pull up, um, you know, you make up right now, but what, what's an uh, a question that we should be prepared to accept as, you know, absolutely, let's figure out how to solve that together that, that you think someone might actually be kind of concerned to ask. I can just tell from my own journey, when I when I first started with the tax authorities, I didn't know so much about data modeling. I'm a linguist by education. So it took me some time to just um, to, to figure out the, dif- uh, the difference between uh, an object and a data type, for instance, right? So, yeah, to be allowed to ask these kinds of very basic questions without feeling silly is mm-hmm. um, is really important because um, um, data modelers are not not they don't grow on trees, right? So you have to, and you, uh, I think, um, good data modelers come from have a have various backgrounds. They are not necessarily um, computer scientists. So you have to accept that people don't have these basic, this basic knowledge in, in, in place when they start. So um, allowing these kinds of questions is, is, has helped me a lot. And uh, today, 10 years later, I'm, I'm, I'm much more knowledgeable, uh, knowledgeable about it um, because I'm, I've had, met all those people. Who allowed me to ask questions? That's a great example. Mm-hmm. It's almost like being able to query your your colleagues, right? Like we yeah. want to be able to query yeah. our colleagues' data, and so yeah. why don't we also uh, query their experience? And and it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, in in our in our globalized, you know, very connected and, and very decentralized world, there's all kinds of pathways um, and and backgrounds that you know mm-hmm. we're coming from. So if we mm-hmm don't have that capacity to, to transfer knowledge when we end up on these teams, then of course the team won't be as strong. And I can imagine that this is only even uh, more important as we think about cross-functional conversations. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, there's just no way that we've been exposed to all of the things mm-hmm. that our our, <laughs> our colleagues mm-hmm. from different disciplines will will know. And this is something that's that's really common in sustainability, which is you know my domain background. There's mm-hmm. this sustainability of systems and, and so you need to have all kinds of different perspectives from environment, mm-hmm. social, economic, and so on. Um, and, and having those conversations, that's where the, the, the lines are, are actually developed. So that's a, a really, really important point and, and something to structure into the, the process, right? Not just uh, hoping mm-hmm. that people will develop these kinds of linkages, but actually 
enabling that through uh, formal processes, maybe. Mm. And on, on a side note also, I think it's, First of all, it, it's very rewarding to work to work in this kind of cross-functional teams and in, in this open way and non-threatening way. It's very it, it gives a deep feeling of sense, and mm -hmm. and it it also makes it easier to keep people to 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 the to lower turn or to turnover how you how you would formulate it in English. So um, people. In, in, in the Norwegian tax authorities where I worked, people tended to stay because in, and they didn't switch jobs every other year because it it gave them a feeling of reward and doing mm. something meaningful. And I think this feeling of meaning comes out of these cross-functional teams where you talk to, together and every everybody brings their strength and knowledge into uh, on onto the table so that we can create something together which is for the benefit of everyone mm -hmm. um, so uh, i think it, it also has this effect that it's easier to to create some kind of loyalty to to what you're doing and continue continuity in in what you're doing so um and you are, wouldn't think about it when you talk about data mesh and it's so, so practical and yes. but it, i think it also has this kind of organizational positive side effects yeah, well, I, I think this is kind of the missing piece, right? Like, as we think about data currently, most folks think of it as this technical object and, you know, mm -hmm. we slice and dice it with various programming techniques and, and languages. But in effect, data is a representation of, of something that happened that someone mm -hmm. captured. Right? It's, a, it's a human process to make data. And as we move, you know, into a more sort of object-oriented relationship with data, the data product, right? Why do we need a data product except for someone mm -hmm. to find it? Like we are, we're, we're actually bringing that that person, you know, back into the, the situation, but it, it's a very interesting process to be doing this because of course, computer scientists are not as focused on on the social side of, mm -hmm. of you know, the, the, the thing. And, and yet that's where business value often is, right? So as you're describing, exactly. you know, lowering, employee churn, that's a huge cost mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. concern for uh, upper management. So that's one way maybe that, that data mesh mm -hmm. projects can be positioned as interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and also I think um, something which which has become more and more important for me personally is, is this kind of enablement, enabling others to do a good job. Mm -hmm. And um, that's why I think the data mesh is so attractive for many because it's about enabling others to use your data. It it mm -hmm. it it's it's about democratization is a big word, but it's about leveling others also to no not keep your knowledge for yourself, but about sharing so that others also can can become proactive and and, and make good decisions. And I find it very rewarding to work this in uh, this way. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's more, there's a giving aspect to yeah. this, which mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds sort of fluffy to say that, but I often think of this uh, metaphor, you know, when we talk about knowledge graphs, we talk about nodes and edges and, and nodes mm -hmm. are these sort, sort of, sort of self-contained circles, which cut Kind of are like silos <laughs> mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. the edges are you know the transactions right the connections mm -hmm. between and and so as we think about moving to you know data mesh organizational structures we also have to think about developing those relationships between yeah. our nodes you know the individuals mm -hmm. 
departments <laughs> and things like that. Actually, that's one of the main concerns I've been met with when I talk to people about data mesh, uh, about people uh, with people who, who don't know anything about data mesh, and I try to introduce them to the idea. The first reaction is, but you're talking about creating new silos. We don't want any silos, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think it's a valid concern. If you are very focused on your data product and this is what we provide and, and you, you don't think about the other side and your consumer, it, it can become yet another silo. But mm -hmm. I think that's where the, the knowledge graph um, layer comes in and becomes so important because it can it, it counterwork this tendency to create silos. And it, it always reminds us of that there's a consumer side outside. Um, somebody needs to be able to understand the mm -hmm. names of our tables and columns and whatever, um, because they need to consume it and, and it needs to be understandable. So, um, so I think data mesh and knowledge graph, they, 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 uh, data mesh needs knowledge graph. I think, mm -hmm. and perhaps even you can say knowledge graphs need data mesh because it's, I think it's really difficult to maintain a knowledge graph across the organization which doesn't think data products and, and usage of your data. So um, I think they depend on each other in a way. So I, I, I agree, but I think that that's a, a rather not obvious, um, you know, mm -hmm. thought at the moment. There's many, mm -hmm. there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot, lot, a huge variation in data maturity in different organizations. Mm -hmm. And some might be, you know, just struggling in the data lake <laughs> and some mm -hmm. might be thinking about data mesh and some might be thinking about knowledge graphs. So what would you say as someone who has explored both and, and seen that, you know, data mesh be very successful, um, what would you say is the a, a sort of a rule of thumb or, or something to think about for these organizations in order to understand that they could use a data mesh, they could use a knowledge graph, and in, in fact, they need them kind of both together? Mm -hmm. um, do you mean what, what, why, why what, one should start with it or how to start? What would be the first steps? Um, I think, well, I, I mean, so that's, that's a good, I think both questions are important. What do you mm -hmm. think for someone who might be listening to this and, and thinking about the own, their data challenges that they see, what do you think is, is the first point to start? I, I would say maybe it's the, the why question, right? Why do you want yeah. to do this? What are you going to get out of it? I mean, first of all, you, if everyone wants to get the most out of the data, right? So you want to reuse it and then not, not store it many times and have, have lots of mess and, and, and the questions forth and back between what does this data mean, who provided it? And, and this once only is a very good principle. It's actually a, one of these EU um, principles. Um, have order in your own house and define it once only or, or store it once only. Um, I think those are good, good rules of thumb in a way. Um, it, it, it has something to do, I think, with um, being sure and having some kind of control. This is the, the golden source of the information I use in my decision now, for instance, so that I don't use some kind of copy. I don't know where, come, where it comes from, but I can trust this, this uh, data. Mm -hmm. um, and and you, the more copies you make, the more difficult is it to, to really trust this data, right? So um, that would be one uh, important argument. Um, 
for the knowledge gap, obvious, obviously, you, just, you shouldn't start with both. And now we big this build we build this big knowledge graph, or now we build this big data mesh. But I think when I think back to our data mesh work, we actually did both at the same time. When you model data, you have already the the first first tiny part of a knowledge graph, right? You you mm -hmm. model data about kindergarten, uh, what you pay for kindergarten, right? And who pays it and, and how much can you deduct from your from your income and all these kinds of things. So you, you build a tiny ontology in a way about this um, domain and, and you, you use it to, to label your fields and your XML, for instance, um, correctly so that others can understand it. It's all already the first step towards a, some kind of a knowledge graph because you, you have the ontology and you have the data. Uh, you just don't know, or we didn't know that we were building some kind of a knowledge graph in a mm -hmm. way. So when while you expand your building, when you do data modeling, modeling properly and try to reuse data models, you are already, and, and also keep, uh, yeah, I also have to add, you, you have to keep this connection between the data and the model for instance, by labeling properly, or even mm -hmm. uh, use URIs for the for the names of um, elements in your XML or in, for the columns in your table, when they can point to a resource where this and the name of this column is defined, then you are already on your on a very good way towards a knowledge graph, mm -hmm. where you have the ontology and the data connected to each other. So, um, mm -hmm. so I think many people do it already. Mem um, those who do data modeling properly, they do it already without actually knowing it, perhaps. Which makes mm -hmm. sense, right? This is <laughs> this is what works. If you are doing what yeah. works, it, it looks a lot like this. Either way, yeah. so if so, if someone is is in a group that needs to transact or share a lot of data mm -hmm. um, and wants to have. Um, like a, a, a quality assurance of, of what that, you know, what data to use, then these are things that maybe should be, you know, considered um, to reduce costs and increase veracity and all of these kinds of things. And there are certain steps, right? And, and what I'm pulling out of what you're saying is that, um, you know, there's an iterative approach where it's sort of a discovery as you're relating with other people as you're discovering new data to bring into this project, there's, you know, there's these, these techniques that you begin with and that helps you move further and further out, which is quite a different approach than, you know, some projects may take where someone sits, you know, a group comes together and, and sits in a, in, in a, in a it's sort of a silo of their own and then builds this big architecture and, and hopes that others will, um, will just adopt mm -hmm. it when it's finished. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm I'm thinking so more about maybe the the human side of of the the team um, because I, I think there's less you know a well um, well known just sort of intuition around how to do this. So you mentioned the working groups that came from um, the project at the, the Norwegian government with the, the tax authority. Is there some specific kind of pattern to follow for creating those working groups and and how does this relate to the broader need to get you know adoption from management and and others that can support this as it moves iteratively forward when i think of those working groups i was part of um i think it often started very informally with people who knew each other from before 
and had mm -hmm. some kind of the same mindset um, and discussed it over a beer or something. And then it spread from 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 there, from these two to more and more people. Um, yet again, because it's a small society, it's easier to achieve. Um, mm -hmm. Perhaps in a larger society, it's about talking about what you're doing and why you are doing, not to be shy. Mm -hmm. And um, and and not to brag, but to, to just to to show what what you think works well also for others. Um, and then also, obviously, you need some some organization who has the funding to to because the small organizations don't are, are not able to send off many people to these kinds of working groups where they. Mm -hmm. uh, try to develop uh, methodologies like these ISO standard mm -hmm. meeting groups. It's difficult to recruit people because it it costs money, right? So, um, so you have to have large, um, large, rather large organizations who take the first steps, um, <clears throat> and then you have to have a, a very specific um, task. For instance, we had to we were we worked on uh, establishing a standard to describe business concepts um, and Norwegian standard and uh, and we had this uh, clear goal that we want to the, the authorities to exchange business concepts where, or, or that you can read on the internet how how does Norwegian tax authorities define income and how, how does the social security offices define income right so that mm -hmm. you can compare um, so we had this very specific goal in like one year from now, we, every authority needs to be able to publish their, their business concepts in the same way. So mm -hmm. um, you have to have a con con concrete deliverable, I think, that helps also getting uh, to get funding because it it makes it easier for um, um, our people from the law department to 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 see what what does the data from another authority mean when you can can just um, uh, look up the the meaning of a certain business concept, right? And mm -hmm. so this kinds of efficiency effects we had mm -hmm. to 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 also describe upfront. Um, but I think in the end it also boiled a little bit down to trust that that those who who took initiative to this were well known people in the community, but they were also well known with management and with the lawmaker, and and so it was easier to 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 say, yes, that must be a good idea because it comes from this person. So there's this whole like strategic side of <laughs> yeah. who, who to approach and, and who needs to talk to each other. I, I'm interested you bring up this idea of, you know, the business concepts being uh, harmonized or at least mm -hmm. um, each, each agency stating what they mm -hmm. mean when they use a term. That's a recurrent challenge that I hear about, right? Like 18 different, yeah. you know, definitions yeah. of the word price in the same agency. Um, mm -hmm. Were you part of any of, of those conversations? Did you see how they handled that? Yeah, I worked closely with the, our law, lawmakers to, to define business concepts regarding tax only mm -hmm. with a, and, and also only with very specific areas of, of the tax law. But um, And in the beginning, we had this mindset we have to harmonize, but, but we all ended up with it's more important that, that each a specific business area describes their their concepts in the way they understand it and make it transparent mm -hmm. uh, rather than 
to come to one definition. It, it's it's not possible because it you have to. I'm, I mean, life is full of variations, right? So so the business concepts also have to take into consideration all, all the breadth of variations in uh, people's lives. So um so we ended up um it it's like this order in your own house. You have to have a clear understanding of your own business concepts. And not so much try to force your business concepts onto others. It's it's better than to to have transparency and then to know how to translate or, or make perhaps rules where where you can translate one kind of information uh, definition of income into another defi uh, definition. Uh, like income for social security purposes is something different than income for tax, right? Um, in order to achieve some kind of right in social security, you have perhaps have to have had a certain income for one year or something, right? And in tax, it's the first crown you, you pay tax on already. So all these kinds of variations you need to have because life is <laughs> so um, variable. Um, it's, it's better to just document it and make it transparent and publish it than to, to not publish anything until you have found some one one harmonized definition of income uh, you won't never, ever get that will never happen yeah. Yeah. yeah so how do you handle that in in the ontology where of course the term you know is the the a computer recognizes a single term right so how do you mm -hmm. equip this system to to use multiple different definitions or mm. relate that I think that the, the very first and most important step is that you don't use terms to identify concepts, but you use identifiers, URIs um, for concepts. And then the, those concepts can have all kinds of terms, right? We had in, in the, with the tax authorities, we had to support eight different languages. So, so it's one concept income, and then you have eight different labels, the English and um, Polish, to, uh, I think, and uh, Sam, Sami um, language. So um, you also always have to think of terms just being a label, and you, but you ha it's the concept you're interested in. So you, you use your eyes and not, not terms. Um, and then you can, can um, that's the whole world of ontology is about where you can make um, formal rules that, that translate one concept in the other. For instance, when, when they both are, you have the superclass of income and you have the um, specialization income from the tax perspective and you have the specialization from the social security. And, and then you can create some formal expression which um, explains what the difference is between those two, which is can also be computer readable. It, it depends on how much work you want to put into it. It's often it's it's not necessarily to to make it computer uh, readable. It's um, more important that the human beings um, understand it. Right, and it, it seems to me too that if we don't, if, if at the current state, you know, we have eighteen different uh, conceptions of what this term means. And we never sit down and, and discuss that and sort of, as mm -hmm. you say, you know, put order in our own house, then we also can't communicate with that in our typical workflows, right? Even beyond mm -hmm. a data system or, or an ontology, but mm -hmm. just as human beings. I mean, I've, mm -hmm. heard, um, I've heard stories of, you know, one, one group thinking that the term is this and one group thinking the term is this, and then they're arguing about that mm -hmm. versus, mm -hmm. you know, seeing that they're both right, but in different ways. Mm -hmm. and then, 
Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, 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 you know, so, so if, if, if you haven't yet drunk the Kool-Aid <laughs> or here's some good reasons to, to think about it. Um, and, and, and so, you know, like th- this is kind of the beginning of a, of an approach to thinking about how and, and why to adopt um, data mesh and, and knowledge graph, particularly together, but, but let's zoom out a- again and, and just go back to the, the story that you were sharing about the Norwegian government. Um, you know, so there was this, this initiative to start to relate to groups outside of the government and define these terms. And then what happened? How did that turn into the, the success that we have heard about? Was there- um, did management have to adopt this or was it just sort of obvious that everything was working and, and people started to just participate or was it formal informal that kind of thing um it was both informal and and formal it started very informally obviously be, with all this pain we were feeling um and now it's a well well established um, organization i think i, I left um, norwegian tax authorities in 2019 so I, i'm not really up to date anymore but i think they have established an um, organization which manages it over time and um, um, and initiates um, evolution of the methodology and they are issuing new standards um, uh, all the time so it's a living organization and they have also this public uh, the the most tangible result of it is this public data catalog um, and the Whedon data catalog where you can look up both data models, data sets, um, concept descriptions, APIs, um, all kinds of things can you can can um, look at and, and, and reference in, in your own development work. Um, <clears throat> so this is um, and this is I think it's part of the public budget <laughs> regular every year. So it's it's a well-established organization right now. Um, from from Denmark, I've even heard that they um, uh, that they have established a special role within the lawmaking process, where where the, whenever there's a new new law coming out um, or being worked on, uh, there must be in this working group there must be one someone who has this data perspective and and knows uh, about how a law needs to be formulated or worded so that you can translate it into data or in data mo- into data models so they have even gone gone f- further with this kind of approach so it's all the way up to the parliament actually thinking mm-hmm. data mesh <laughs> So, I mean, that's, I, again, I've heard, you know, sort of the feedback from, from folks in different organizations that they may get a, a project to, you know, to, to taxonomize and to, to represent um, historically after it's been built and without any input in, in how it was designed, which is, of course, a huge problem for, mm-hmm. you know, systems that, that have their own requirements. Um, so that's a really interesting model that Parliament actually <laughs> has has the, the 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 framework for including that voice at the beginning. Um, so how long did it take to get from sort of the beginning? Was it did you say early? Was it two thousand nine? And then so maybe like a yeah, I think mm-hmm. something uh-huh. like that. Yeah, mm, so ten years or something. 
And so the, 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 the arc is that, you know, there's a pain and then there's this sort of community driven um, trust building exercise, which involves an iterative exploration of the data models and the languages and the tools, probably with the people that are, are informing that the people who will use the data, the people that have the data and different kinds of organizations. And if that's successful, then um, it produces results, right? So we see mm-hmm. that there's efficiencies and so on, other people want to adopt it. And then there's, you know, probably enough support that we start to think about governance and, and how we can build more support structures and ensure that, you know, all of the different pieces that are required to, to kind of put together, um, that we that we have the structures to do that, like the, the data mesh person at the beginning mm-hmm. of projects and, mm-hmm. and on and on and these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really great model to to aspire to for you know folks that are are, are interested in this um, in this kind of of data approach, but that's not necessarily how every project starts, right? So I think in your in your current role, um, you're focused more on developing knowledge graphs than the knowledge graph data mesh combo, or even than than data mesh. So tell us what what that looks like. What's the purpose? Um, that you see in your organization for adopting knowledge graphs as let's, let's just start there and then we can, mm-hmm. we can see where. Mm-hmm. That uh, yes. Um, um, right now I work as a data architect with the Fraunhofer Gesellschaft and um, they have a think tank, which I'm part of. And the think tank is, is a group of people from all kinds of backgrounds who, who, need to deliver decision support to senior management, right? Where to, where to set up a new research program or which kind of laboratories to establish or all, all kinds of decisions, right? With a lot of money attached to it. Um, and, and they need to make these decisions more or the decision support more data-driven. So um, they are already using a large, of, a large variety of sources to, to look into uh, things were, or investment suggestions like internal data about projects and, and research programs and finances, but also external um, sources like publication databases, p- patent databases, um, business uh, descriptions like fact set is one of those um, databases I, I recall right now. Um, and they want, and they need to see them all together and analysis, uh, uh, um, do analysis on them um, across those different sources, right? And it's only the internal sources we have, have some kind of control over uh, regarding the naming and semantics. We barely have control over this uh, either. So, but it's um, more of a control. The external sources we don't have any control over, right? So we have. Um, <clears throat> And every analyst in, in our organization needs to do the same kind of harmonization between the, those um, different patent uh, databases, for instance, again and again and again. So we needed some kind of a translation layer, which makes it easier um, for our analysts to do these analysis um, and not to have to reinvent the wheel uh, or make it manually, do it manually again and again. So. We started establishing uh, uh, this knowledge graph across patent databases, publications, our own projects, um, reusing, for instance, uh, also external taxonomies. There's uh, this Australian uh, research uh, and technology taxonomy about all kinds of 
field of research you could be interested in. Um, so we, we, we tried, we are at the very beginning, but we are trying to, to build this um, translation layer, um, one could call it, um, mm -hmm. where, we, where you, you can look, regardless of how the, the source looks under the hood, uh, you can um, uh, uh, um, combine data and, and, and find patterns in, in your analysis. Um, but it's a very, very tedious work uh, or a long-term work because um, obviously it needs to 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 be done um, along with the business experts on patents, for instance. They they need to help us build this knowledge graph, and we start with an ontology, right, and then connect it to the data. And um, those who are, who do ontology engineering with us, they are not patent experts, so they need to sit down with the uh, colleagues from the patent um, department, but they their their main business is not defining an ontology about patent uh, information. They their uh, business is to uh, advise researchers in, in filing patents, right? Mm -hmm. So it's always this struggle with um, getting time and attention, and and um, also getting them to understand what is an ontology. Why are we doing this? So, mm -hmm. so the business people also need to learn a little bit more or, or learn to think in data ways or ontology ways. It's a new field for them too, just as much as it, as patents is a new field for me. So, mm -hmm. um, so both sides have to grow outside their comfort zone, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. which makes it very interesting on a human level because it's very interesting what, that, what happens in those working, working, um, meetings. Um, mm, so it's, it's always a struggle. We are too few people, so too few hands. It's always a struggle about time. Um, mm -hmm. So mm. so it's so there's a few different um, themes that I'm catching here. So one is, mm -hmm. you know, why to do it? Well, because we are repurposing the same work, right? Where we have the analysts mm -hmm. that are harmonizing data individually individually many many times mm -hmm. over and of course that's not efficient and no one wants to do that and you know and, and, it, and it limits the amount of actual value that comes out of that analysis mm -hmm. if 80% of the analyst time is just wrangling um and so but it's interesting because then you have this 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 diametric situation where now we're going to centralize that integration but we have to find the time to do that and now we have to, to kind of split that off between the many different groups that have to participate in, you know, explaining what this domain is so that we can harmonize once and, and go on from there. And that's one of the, the big challenges, right, with, with knowledge graphs is that um, it's hard to explain what you're trying to do, what is an mm -hmm. ontology, it's hard to point out what the outcomes are going to be, and thus it's hard to get the support to have everyone, you know, kind of centralize a little bit of themselves into this commons, um, which is very much different than than our typical workflow. So in a way, it's like the counterpoint of data mesh, where data mesh has us reaching out to talk with others that we may be not doing mm -hmm. so currently. Knowledge graph makes us reach in mm -hmm. to share something from ourselves mm -hmm. in a way that mm -hmm. is also a little bit unfamiliar. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it, I, I totally see your point here where it helps to do them both at the same time, right? Because mm -hmm. if we can talk to each other to explain why we need contributions from each of them, then there's this this kind of feedback process like that can, you know, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. on the flywheel and, and hopefully um, build some, some support around that. Mm-hmm. So are there, are there specific techniques that you're, that you're thinking about? Are you bringing data mesh concepts from your previous experience into the current goals with, with knowledge graph? Is that something that your colleagues are interested in? Yeah, well, I I um, started mentioning or talking about it just when I started working with Fraunhofer because I was so used to living in this kind of world. And um, but it was new to my colleagues. Um, and now after a year, we have it, it. It has matured in a way, and we try to think more more and more in these data owner or data product owners and uh, teams and cross-functional teams who, who are responsible for the data they are providing and uh, so that the consumers can understand it. Um, but I think what also helped, uh, apropos, um, it's so difficult to explain to be the business side why you are doing knowledge graph. I, I try also to uh, always to, to um, explain in this, it, in this way. You, you are used to sharing knowledge when you write a paper, right? Or you write a guideline for how to apply for a patent or something. Mm-hmm. Now we don't do it in 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 uh, long um, texts and long long sentences. We do it with boxes and errors, and it, it's it's just a different way of expressing your knowledge, um, so that not only hum- human beings can read it, but also um, computers, right? So uh, that helps a little bit. Um, to lower the threshold or, or reduce the skepticism about mm-hmm. this me- methodology, it's it's about just finding a, a different way of, exp- of 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 sharing your knowledge, and mm-hmm. um, if you and if you you can turn the the way of thinking about their knowledge a little bit more in, into this data world, which is about boxes and errors, um, it, it, it makes it easier to, to talk about it, I think. Um, mm. is, is yeah, that but what were you asking? I have, I have forgotten your original oh, question. Um, I think I asked if you were bringing data mesh concepts to, to the team, which yeah. you mentioned, and, and how they how they respond. Is that, you know, is it intuitive or is it kind of like, oh, you know, does your team understand knowledge graphs, but not data mesh, or <laughs> what is it like? It de- depends on who you're talking uh, to. Um, obviously, the business side doesn't know anything about data mesh or knowledge graphs. They, mm-hmm. they don't want to be bothered with it. They just just want to have the data. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, uh, on the on the data engineering side and then and uh, the software developer side, it's uh, it's easier because. Again, they feel this pain, right, um, of of um, providing very heterogeneous data, which isn't really different, but it's just labeled differently, and and um, <clears throat> and and they know, but they know it means the same if you ask person X, and uh, but person Y doesn't uh, agree, and so they they feel this pain, and because mm. they get all those questions about the data, right. Um, because in the end, it's the, the database developer who needs to know or is being asked about what the data means. And they are lost often because they don't have the business side to help them uh, shape their, their data models or schemas in, uh, in a good way. So actually, they were the ones who, who, who understood more mm-hmm. easily because of this pain. You know, I think that's a really that's a really important point that you bring up because 
as you say, business people, they don't want to think about data mission knowledge graphs. They just want to think about, or they just want to get their data, right? Just give yeah. it to me. You know, I don't ask me yeah. to whatever. And yet, um, you know, I've been struck as a, as a business person coming into knowledge graphs in this data space and learning about the problems and hearing sort of, um, you know, all of the, the, the just the, these many, many stories of, of dysfunction. Looking back out now at the business usage of data, especially from a perspective of sustainability, which, you know, has many of its own challenges that are quite similar in, in ways to the data challenges. Um, what I've seen, what I'm seeing is that the business people who just want data are using things that just are not accurate, right? Like there's just mm -hmm. not a good relationship between that material and the actual situation on the ground that they mm -hmm. think that they're representing. And it's, you know, it's an interesting, so this is a really common, or this is a really important piece um, in the ESG market, which is like corporate sustainability. There's a lot of metrics that are are floating around. Um, they are renowned for being uh, divergent. If you use one metric, you get completely different rankings of companies than if you use another, um, which is a data problem, right? And so the, the business people are confused and they don't know what's going on, but it's not clear to them that this is like what, what is happening. The root of all of this is the same kind of thing that, you know, uh -huh. everyone in the data backend is dealing with every day on every topic. Uh -huh. So I wonder if there is some opportunity for the, the computer, you know, and data side to present to the business um, user and explain how, how, uh, what's the right word? I mean, just chaotic uh -huh. data uh -huh. is because of the practices, you know, that are, um, that are currently being used to develop it and, and describe it and so on, um, and start to explain that, like, although you think that you're getting data, right, you are getting some kind of content on the computer. <laughs> there are bits that are coming through, but they, they may not be good, right? Like, we can't have um, data quality without having a data conversation. <laughs> exactly, yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, uh -huh. And I think because I think that what's what's missing is just that um, they're really not aware. You know, I mean, like I, I can say from my experience of talking to engineers and things like this, like I've never heard about any of these these things. You know, I, and I read lots of papers and, you know, I've never thought about asking where those you know papers mm -hmm. are, what the foundations of those things are. So, you know, I, I think that the story of of um, challenge coming from the computer engineers and the data scientists would actually go a long way towards building the bridge of support that mm -hmm. we need and then have and again like having these cross-sector conversations right so that we can bring in the expertise that's needed in knowledge graphs and build the relationship mm -hmm. that's needed for data mesh mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it, it was not not my intent to to talk Badly about business people when I said they are not interested in data mesh. They they are very much interested in plausible data, right? Mm -hmm. They they I see it with my my analyst colleagues. They react immediately immediately if uh, when there's something not really plausible in the data. When you mm -hmm. visualize something or come up with some figures and calculations, and they they think this can't be right, then we start digging, and then they. They learn what the causes can be for this kind of inconsistency, for instance. So um, 
they are they are acutely aware of, of lack of data quality, but I think the 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 the, the sheer terminology of data mesh and knowledge graphs and so on just um, makes them a bit um, very, uh, it's, it's too abstract or something. So I, I try to keep it from them. I actually, I don't talk so much about it. Um, mm. I, I explain more on, on the, uh, with the specific uh, example they are pointing to, I, I, I try to explain how, where the data comes from and how this inconsistency might have uh, come about, right? So. So that they start getting a feeling of, of how the how much nitty gritty details there mm -hmm. are behind before you can do your analysis. Mm -hmm. So um, it's about learning about the different world also for them. Mm. So so my takeaway here is you know that I mean the general takeaway is it's important to have lots of conversations if yeah. you're you know, trying to get good data, which is something that involves transmission from someone else. If you're trying to share that data. If you're trying to find that data, all of these um, activities require knowing discovery and and sort of um, interpretability, legibility between different groups. So we should be thinking about different conversations that need to be had and and sharing, um, you know, the the assumptions that we are bringing to things in order to build those relationships that are required for reorganizing. Um, so thank you so much for sharing about these couple of experiences. I feel like we could probably talk for hours. Um, but <laughs> just before we, we wrap up, are there any last thoughts that you'd like to impart um, in a viewer who is thinking about these, these types of options for themselves? I think um, some kind of pep talk, don't be afraid. Um, uh -huh. um, and I think the most important um, prerequisite is to be curious, I think, about mm -hmm. talking to someone with a co totally different background. It's not dangerous. I've, I've been living it with, with it with, for my whole life, so it's it's actually enjoyable and it's the prerequisite for, for, for being successful with both data mesh and knowledge graphs. Yeah, be curious. Mm -hmm. And I think we can take something from the open source um, zeitgeist here, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we all know that code gets built faster and stronger because lots of people are contributing to mm -hmm. it. So how can we take that philosophy and expand it to, you know? Exactly. The and then open source is, is, is one, the main example for trust, right? Or, or making yourself vulnerable. You, you expose your code and then mm -hmm. you let others build on it and you're not afraid of being, being built upon in a way. So it's, um, Open source is a very good example for this kind of trust and mm. fearlessness. I I, uh, I think of yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm I'm encouraged. Um, I'm, I'm always happy to hear that community is the answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for for joining today, Veronica. And if others have questions, where can they they find you for more conversation? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. I think that's the most the okay. easiest way. Great. Perfect. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'd again like to thank our guest host for this KGC Takeover, Ellie Young, founder of Common Action, and our guest today, Veronica haderlein Hjogberg. As always, you can find both of their contact information in the show notes. This week is a takeover week for the Knowledge Graph Conference, which is happening May 2nd through 6th in person in New York and online 
and with the fourth through the sixth being kind of the main conference days and the second and the third being workshop days. So the reason why I wanted to do a takeover is I think that knowledge graphs are very crucial, but that I just haven't seen a lot of information about knowledge graphs and how to apply it to data mesh, or even generally that there's a lot of people within the community that um, are as knowledgeable on what knowledge graphs are and how they can be useful in a data mesh implementation. So that's why we agreed to a takeover week. Uh, we also agreed because they are doing a free ticket giveaway. You can see the show notes for more information on this. But I do think that knowledge graphs is something that a lot of people uh, should be looking into as to how can we leverage these so that we can think about exploring data connectivity between data products and between domains in a much easier fashion, especially so that we don't lock ourselves into overly rigid ways of sharing data so that domains themselves can evolve and that we can also think about the overall evolution of the broader organization. So again, uh, if you want to look at more information about the conference or um, sign up or look again for that, that free ticket giveaway, please do check the show notes. Thanks. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.